bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment and describe a little project I've been working on. You know, I've had the opportunity to sit here and talk to you through the voice of almost 300 guests now on Built to Sell Radio, and it's been an absolute privilege. I've learned an enormous amount. And I've tried to distill those lessons into a new book called The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. It comes out on January 12th. And what I've tried to do is distill all of the strategies and negotiation tips used by the best performing guests, the guests that have had the most spectacular exits, and put them into a bit of a game plan that you can follow. It's divided into three unique sections. The first, everything you need to do before you put your business on the market. The second is really about drumming up multiple offers, which gives you negotiating leverage in the sale of your company. And the third section is all about punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your business. If you like the show, I think you're gonna like the book. January 12th, it comes out. You can pick up a copy and learn a little bit more at builttosell.com slash selling. So how's your cash flow these days? My next guest, Tyler Jeffcoat, built his business using, in the beginning, a negative cash flow cycle, meaning he paid people before he got money. And the faster he grew, the more cash his company sucked up. He built it to 100 employees, but almost went bankrupt along the way because he had a negative cash flow cycle. Well, he made a significant change. I'll let Tyler describe what change he made and flip the negative cash flow cycle to a positive one. And the rest was history. He ultimately built a successful company and you'll learn how he did that. Lots of great lessons for an aspiring value builder in this episode. Listen in particular for how they moved to a subscription business model. They leveraged something called the simplifier model and it didn't lead to any churn whatsoever. So listen for that. Also, I loved his explanation of the training wheels business. I think you'll find that thought-provoking as a concept. And then finally, Tyler does a great job of describing some essentials to any partner agreement. If you've got a passive or, in fact, an active investor in your company, some real uh, hard-won secrets from Tyler on creating an operating agreement. Here to tell you his entire story is Tyler Jeffcoat. Jeff Coat. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Care to Continue, what do you guys do? Or what did you guys do? Yeah, so Care to Continue was basically a home healthcare model. So we, and, and still is, it's been sold and rolled up to a large national franchise now. But we, we the, the pain point was that I had two grandparents that had terrible kind of nursing home experiences, if you can imagine that. And we we were just frustrated. So I was a finance guy and joined a business partner who also had a kind of a heart for senior citizens. And so we just built a company around how can we provide a better experience for the two customers? I think that was our big aha early on was that we had a senior citizen customer and we had a caregiver nurse CNA customer and both populations were being underserved. And so care to continue existed to serve them better. 
Got it. And so what was the business model? So what did you so provide? Essentially, we, we were basically an hourly care in your home. So it was a, awesome. you know, kind of imagine the extreme side of a, of a staffing nightmare, right? <laughs> you know, we ended up with a 120 employees, most of which were actually coming to your mom's house and providing care. So a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, uh, it's yeah, it's a great, oh, great ministry. Yeah. It's so timely right now because of course we're recording this in the depths of this pandemic and here in Canada, at least I'm not sure what it's like there. Um, but, uh, these healthcare workers that are, that are, first of all, so much of the devastation is happening in these retirement homes yes. and equally the people who are working in these retirement homes are getting sick and, and it's, um, and so it, it's, it's, it's causing a national reckoning in Canada about all oh, the way we are dealing with older citizens and the people who care for them. So it's a very, I mean, are, is it the same in the U S I mean, is there, are there huge issues around this? Oh, totally. And I think it was, even we saw this almost 10 years ago where the baby boomers were aging quickly into the population set that needs care and the the facilities weren't up to snuff. That's kind of what you alluded to there. The ability to deliver quality care. And then you mix that with the reality that frankly, baby boomers just had a lot of the, the world's wealth, right? I mean, there's so much um, disposable income. They're like, we got to do something different. Something different needs to change. And, and to your point though, about the pandemic, man, I could not be more thankful <laughs> to not be managing, uh, you know, a hundred CNAs that are responsible. I mean, think about that conflict of interest that that manager has to feel to be like, no, you have to go to work or we're in danger of committing some kind of an elder abuse because we're not serving Mrs. Johnson. While at the same time, you've said that you think that you maybe kind of have COVID-19. Like, how do you manage that dynamic, right? And mm -hmm. so the fact that I don't have to is um, a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you refer to an acronym called a CNA. What does that stand for? Yeah, so sorry, the U.S. it's a certified nursing assistant. So it's kind of okay. a part of the medical, you know, litany of different certs that you could get that uh, allow you to do certain things for a patient. Got it. And, and I think in, again, in Canada, I think we, we refer to PSWs or personal support workers. Is, is that, would that be sort of akin to? It sounds like that's very you, similar. Yeah, yeah, very I think similar. that's a similar model. Got it. Okay, so a certified nursing assistant is, uh, is someone who would go into Mrs. Jones's home and help her in whatever way she needs help in that, in that, on that day. And, and she would go into the next home. And I'm assuming that person would, 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 would work by the hour. Would, did you pay them by the hour? How did that work? No, that's exactly right. And so if you think about, uh, at least in the American healthcare model, insurance and therefore hospitals are really good at kind of a break fix model. If you, if you, break a hip or have an <laughs> issue, they will pay to fix it. But all the other stuff, you know, bathing or making sure you can stand sit, uh, buying groceries, preparing meals, cleaning up, uh, even at some point when you're really at the end of a disease process, maybe even need an adult diaper, that kind of thing. Like that kind of assistance that actually, frankly, keeps you out of the hospital is a different uh, insurance model. You normally have like a long-term care insurance product that would take care of that. And, and you're exactly right. So it ends up being what's the the, the, the economic model, so to speak, is where's the price per hour? In other words, depending on your customer that you can charge and then turn around and pay the caregiver and still cover the nursing and other kind of regulatory elements that are involved in the business. Got it. And so who paid your bill? 
Was it the insurance company or the private citizen, Mrs. Jones or her you know, family members? A little bit of both, but none of it was health insurance. Although I think that's changing in the market now. I think the, the US health insurance world is starting to wake up to the reality that, wait a minute, if we just paid 20, 30 bucks an hour to have somebody prevent the hip break fall, like that would be kind of cool. I don't think that's happened quite yet. And so the, the prevailing business model is either private pay or you have one of these specialized long-term care insurance policies that is that was that was bought specifically to cover kind of non-medical care, like being in an assisted living facility or having someone like a caregiver come into your home. Got it. And so you would charge for intensive purposes. Like what would what would a CNA uh, earn in an hour? Like what would you pay an hourly rate on an hourly rate? Yeah. So the business model was basically you can kind of imagine like a fifty percent model. So if I could charge twenty two dollars an hour to the customer or to the insurance company. I'm going to be able to pay the, the caregiver about $11 an hour. You can kind of think about it like that way. And yeah. that, that the, the numbers make sense. I can pay the nurse to go and do the care planning. I can, you know, keep the, the shingle up and, and, and it's not a, and here's the challenge of the business models. It's not a great margin per hour kind of business. And, and, and when you think about the kind of responsibility that the caregiver has, man, you'd love this to be a 35, $40 an hour business, but because it's not being covered by the insurance company, that's just not realistic. Got it. And it's all in-home care, as I understand it. That's right. Got it. So you, you charge basically twice what you pay, and but you've obviously got all the overhead and all the, all the you know, you're running a company. So that people will get that totally. Um, tell me how the cash moved. So I get the margin, but how did the cash move? So uh, you pay the employee first or you would get, you got the money up front first. Like how did, how did that work from a cash flow perspective? Well, it shifted really critically about two and a half years in because we almost went kaput. So we had a hundred and woke up one day and had $150,000 in accounts receivable and we were toast. We, so we were always paying our teammates every Friday. So it was a weekly pay cycle and where we had to change. Um, and I found this even with, with other businesses is I only want to negotiate the price once I want to negotiate it up front and I want to be able to control the pay cycle. And when we didn't do that, we ended up with a ton of accounts receivable and we were in trouble. And so what we, we went back to all of our customers somewhere along, maybe it was 2015 or something like that. Went went back to all of our customers and said, Hey, we're going to not increase your rate. If you'll just go ahead and give us a credit card or an ACH, a checking account kind of credentials where we can just draft the payment. And so we moved and we were worried we were going to lose a bunch of customers. We lost none. We didn't lose any customers. Wow. And so all of a sudden we got to a model where our teammates that were out in the field would submit time, say on Saturday night, you know, the accounting department comes in Monday morning and can go ahead and just run the billing. That's in our account by Wednesday, Thursday, the payroll comes out Wednesday, Thursday. And so there was, there was a, it went from being a really bad cash cycle to being a fairly favorable cash cycle where we could just turn it each week. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you, you switch from a negative to a positive cash flow cycle, something we talk a lot about. So the, uh, that's fantastic. And interesting, have you been able to reflect on or were you able to kind of glean from customers uh, what their reaction to moving to an ACH or credit card model, uh, why you didn't lose any customers effectively? Like, what, Was there some hidden reason that, that it was more favorable for them? Yeah, I, I think we did do a good job of positioning it to them as a win. Hey, you guys are having to stroke a check every week. I mean, there's whatever any business would do. This is this is a headache. It's happening every week. It's predictable. And and then to be honest with you, I think what they just they needed us to not apologize for it. I think we just had to go and just be honest. Say, hey guys, 
um, this is the only way we can operate and, and safely provide the care. A lot of times, if you think about it, a lot of times our customer would have been the, the 45 to 65 year old child, right? So we're saying, hey, Susie, we're taking care of your mom. We want to be able to continue doing that. Um, and we want to make sure the caregiver gets paid. You want to make sure the caregiver gets paid because that needs to be an issue that is not on the table at all. And so we just had to come in with no exceptions and just say, hey, we really need you to get on board with this. And, and I guess probably in part in hindsight, because it was the more middle-aged son or daughter that were often stroking the check each week on behalf of mom or dad, they were a little bit less resistant. They're busy. They're at the height of their careers also. Their kids are going into college and they're thinking, oh God, this is one less issue on my plate. Right. <laughs> right? But I do say this, we were anxious. We were like, we were, we were getting ready for a five to 10% dip because we mm. knew how frustrated just kind of anecdotally some of the clients had been we were like hey we're thinking about going this direction they were like ah we'll never do that and and, and they all they all did because the pro the service was still great and so anyway I'm, I'm thankful but yeah that's that's what happened that's fantastic it must have been you must have had an incredible insurance package because i'm thinking the liability you would have to be going into all these old people's homes uh you know I mean, stuff happens, right? Like, you, oh my gosh, you bump into the rocking chair. Like, I just can't imagine all the stuff that would potentially happen when you've got hundreds of uh, CNAs and thousands of customers. Like, that must have cost you a fortune. Yeah, it was. I have a feeling that the insurance company they either loved us or hated us, right? I think <laughs> so. So, yes, yes. Uh, one thing we did earlier on is we parted partnered with a really, really good HR company because there are going to be. Uh, not just workers comp but unemployment kind of claims that you have to deal mm -hmm. with that was not our expertise so i'm really i'm 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 glad we made the choice to outsource that early is that and like a peo i've heard of that acronym before yes. peo okay that's so exactly what we did here in, in in the states was we just said hey we're going to go ahead and and there was a bit of a debate happening back in 2012 about whether this caregiver business model should be 1099 as a contractor versus w2 employee Mm -hmm. And we really believed that the prevailing winds were heading towards W-2. So we went ahead and brought them on as employees, but under a PEO that was really, really well situated to handle any issues, to be that, that kind of conduit of keeping things smooth. Uh, and as a result, but, but to your point, I mean, yeah, not only is there a danger of, hey, am I going to hurt my back when I lift somebody? There's also the, hey, under the nurse's direction, I'm going to be giving medications to somebody oh my gosh, yeah, uh, yeah. who might not be completely have all their mental faculties. Yikes. Right. And so you're, you're exactly right there. I'm sure the insurance companies were either scared to death of us. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think we had an insurance company fire us a few years in and we hadn't even <laughs> had any claims. They just literally had a, you know, what, as a strategic policy, we're not going to do any more home care. Here's three phone numbers you can call. They're just, they're done with us. So. Yeah. So I'm doing the math here and I'm saying, okay, you're paying 11, you're getting 22 you're paying 11, but then you got to pay the PEO a percentage. And then you got to pay on top of that insurance. I, like I'm just doing the math and I'm thinking this is a relatively low margin at the end of the game. Like what, what, would, what, would, a, what would a good EBITDA margin from year over year have been for you guys? Yeah, so I think, so if you think about a contribution margin on the direct labor, so you- okay. So, so I would say that that number is probably, believe it or not, it's about 40%. So we still, okay. we would still come out okay. We had fairly, a fairly lean, uh, even the PEO arrangement was fairly clean. 
Okay. Um, we didn't have the ability to, to uh, and we were never quite at a, at a point where we had to offer health insurance. I believe health insurance would have destroyed the business model the way we had it situated. So mm. only 38 to 40% kind of gross profit on the labor. And then, you know, you do have to have a couple of nurses on staff. Those are much more expensive office staffers mm -hmm. and the other administrative piece and the, the regulatory hurdles of the state. Um, so at the end of the day, our target was always to reach about 20%, still, you know, 15 to 20% EBITDA. Okay. That's not bad. Yeah. And, and let me just say that I think that would probably be an adjusted EBITDA. So I think, I think because we were paying not just me as the operating CEO, but we were actually paying the, the passive partner a small salary also. So we, we never finished a year at 20% EBITDA. It would have been uh, seven, eight, nine percent. Um, but that was after paying us. And so um, I do think that the industry, it, and now, and here's the problem is I don't know what the pressure on the industry is now. There has to be just unbelievable pressure on on wages, like, kind of in a good way. Like you and I would say, wow, like we want to make sure we're taking care of the people that are in mom's home, sure. yeah. but in a terrible way because the market can't support the increase. And so I think uh, that's one of the reasons I was interested in getting out, to be honest with you. And, and I still think there's a ton of strength in the industry, but it's going to have to be a tremendous scale in order to be able to uh, centralize all of your functions and still make, still make a good living, um, you know, doing this model. Makes, makes sense. You mentioned a passive investor. So maybe talk a little bit about the capital structure. So you were uh, the CEO and I, I assume part owner, but yeah. there was someone else uh, that, tell me about that. Yeah. So literally from day one, uh, the business partner approached me and he just said, Hey, he, he was kind of, we had both had some connection to, to senior services and never in this business. And we're just like, man, we really are, we were pissed off at the problem. Here's the problem. We'd like to solve it. He had some capital. I was a freshly minted MBA with zero <laughs> experience and no business leading a company in the healthcare world. And I was just like, yes, always want to start a company, got some capital, let's go get it. And, and so he, he owned the majority of the company. I owned 25% of it and I was the active partner. I was the managing partner. And, we had a, we had a great run and, and you haven't asked me about a key lesson yet, but I'm just going to say this. Mm -hmm, I avoided some conflict that needed to happen in probably 2014 that really came back to bite both of us in 2017, 18. And I just, I think that's one of my biggest learnings is, you know what, we had some issues with our balance sheet. Uh, we had some issues with the way we worked together. And it, I felt weak, you know, my family was young. I didn't have a ton of capital myself. And I allowed that fear to just let me not have a couple of hard conversations. Um, hey man, love you, respect you. Here's an issue with our contract that we should just deal with. Let's just put it in front of us now while we're at 50 employees, right? And, and I think what I believed falsely, and this has become so clear to me now, is I believed that scale in and of itself would solve our problems, that we could um, take whatever we're doing. And if we just scaled it, there's enough pie for everyone. Everyone's going to be happy, like that kind of thing. What I've realized now is scale only magnifies or amplifies what you're doing, right? If your products have great margins, scale is going to amplify or magnify that. If, you're, if your uh, balance sheet has systemic challenges or your cash flow structure has systemic challenges, then adding fuel to the fire in the form of cash or scale or employees 
only magnifies those challenges. And so anyway, if I could give anybody one piece of advice, don't wait and don't believe that just getting bigger is going to make it better. Because I think I would say if you could sum up our strategy in 14, 15 and 16, it was like, let's scale so quickly that we can outrun these problems. And we outrun about half of them, but not enough mm -hmm. of it for it to really be a great scalable business. Beyond what was the balance sheet issue that you guys were struggling with? So for us, it was a lot of once we inked our deal, we ended up bringing, I guess what I would call some arbitrary debt onto the balance sheet. So there's just, there's just, to be honest with you, this is, um, you know, I wish that I had had an attorney look at it again and say, hey, the way this thing's getting negotiated, there's some tripwires here that are going to add a tremendous amount of burden payable to the investor that that are going to handicap your ability to grow well in the future. And I was just, I was just like, wow, I'm going to 25% of this company. Let's go. You know? And so I just wasn't as diligent at really reviewing the contract and nothing, nothing fishy. I'm not, I'm, I'm there's no accusation. It was just, the reality is it was very, very one-sided in the way it was written. And because, and I don't think either of us could have foreseen this, but because only 25% of the equity was active, we needed a healthy balance sheet so that we could invest heavily in the personnel and the systems that would allow us to scale profitably. And instead we were kind of in constant bootstrap mode because there was so much demand on our limited cash flow. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, I would say that's basically what it was. It does, but I skipped accounting class. So you got you to gotta go slow with me. When I, I'm good on profit and loss statements. I get really confused by balance sheets. I was just like, the whole thing is just a, I don't know. Maybe I got to go back to school. Well, you, but you know what? Here's the thing. It's another way of, you were talking about the cash cycle earlier. Yeah. This is a simpler way to say it. Think about those two years where we had $150,000, $180,000 in outstanding receivables. We were like, please pay us. We just need to make payroll this Friday. Would you please, please. pay us? <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, we had, we had created, not to like a bank, but to one of the partners, significant debt payments each month that needed to go out to satisfy. So think about that's a, that's a tremendous amount of pressure on the cash. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much capital you start with. If you're waiting, what for us ended up being close to 60 days to get paid at the, at the worst point, and you have you know this constant need to, to satisfy not real bank debt, but partner debt, that was really what I think that's probably I'm, I probably overcomplicated earlier, but that, that's just it. We just had we just had a lot of debt on the balance sheet that wasn't going to be sustainable with the cash flow model that was broken. And it did get excuse me, it did get better when we fixed the cash flow model. That was great. It got positive, but it was almost never quite positive enough to keep us over the next hill as we were growing. And I think that was the big learning model for me is, OK, any business I run from here on out, including the one I own now, we get paid first. That's the first and foremost thing. I do not work behind money ever. And then the second thing is I'm going to be very, very, very intentional to only take on debt or leverage if I know for a fact or I feel very confident that that leverage is going to help me build profit scalability into the future. In other words, it can't just be us at the table saying, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll add a back salary owed for you from four years ago. Like, did you say something like that kind of thing? that's bad debt for a business trying to scale because it doesn't give you any additional new leverage. It's just paying old bills that there's kind of a dispute between the two of you and you just let's just throw it on the balance sheet. We'll figure it out later. Got it. And what do you mean by work behind money? I've never heard that expression before. I heard a guy, I heard a guy here in Georgia say that a few years ago and I thought the same thing. And then, 
And then I had that moment where we had 150 grand in, in accounts receivable. I'm like, oh, that's it. <laughs> oh, this is what he meant. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, I want to okay. work in front of money. I, I don't even, I might be reversing it, but I, I want to make sure money's right here when I start working. I don't want to work. I don't want to work and have money trailing me. I mean, maybe that's a better way to say it. Uh, where, okay, right. Where I'm, I'm going to go do the work, do the work and say, would you please pay me? I would love it if you paid me. Um, got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Back to the whole cash flow AR right. and, 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 and the fix that you made. Uh, awesome. That's great. Um, you know, it's funny. I just did an interview earlier this week um, with a guy who built a, a successful company with his partner and they reached a point where they pulled up and said, hold on a second. Like we've been fairly rewarded for the business we built because they were able to pull out uh, some cash along the way and they were starting to feel a little bit guilty. Like they, they, they'd been fairly compensated and, and they're like, we need to sell this business. They ended up doing an ESOP. We need to sell this business because the next tranche of growth, the next sort of S curve, like we want our employees to participate in that more. And it was a sense of like a little bit of just this weird kind of, not weird, I shouldn't say that, but it was a bit of a guilt that they were benefiting disproportionately from somebody else's labor. And I'm wondering if on the other side of the coin, you've got a passive investor who owns 75%, leave it up with a bunch of debt, not doing anything in the company necessarily. And here you are busting your ass. Uh, and did you ever feel a little bit resentful? Like, hold on a second, I'm busting my ass here. And, and, and like, did that feeling ever arise? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could say that the motives were always never that, but of, but of course, yeah. I mean, I think you look at a, you know, like any other fast growing business that's fairly labor intensive, a couple of 80 hour weeks in a row. And you're like, what's going on here? You know? And so, so yes, I, I do think that the, and again, I think this was my rose colored goggles to begin with where I said, well, you know, and, and I'm an accountant dude, this is not like I shouldn't understand these balance sheet concepts, but I was delusional in thinking that we could scale to such a point where I wouldn't care about what I knew was not really equitable to begin with. And, and then again, once we were a few steps in, there were a couple opportunities where it just would have been easier to deal with it than what ended up happening, which, you know, was I wanted to bring an investor, another investor in that would give us some more active equity so that we could really take this thing. You're talking about the next S curve, the next, mm -hmm. the next growth trajectory. And, uh, and my business partner wasn't ready to do that. And I think it was made harder because we hadn't dealt with some of these things early. Like it would have made it's, it's all, yes. Yeah, so all that to say, you look at it and you're like, wow, um, now in hindsight, I am objectively grateful. Think about this. I'm a guy that's just finishing grad school. I was a middle manager in a huge bank and I have the opportunity to build a company at 29 that on someone else's dime. Are you kidding me? So I'm, 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 I say this with no anything other than gratitude, but what I've learned is, okay, great. Be grateful, but also make sure that things are equitable. Make sure they make sense because if you don't, you're not going to be able to hide that lack of pleasure in the situation for long and it will end up driving a wedge in your partnership you know and so i would say that in addition to that though i mean this business model is just a tough one unless you really got a, a nine-figure vision for it i really want to build some significant scale and so you know the other thing i would say in hindsight is i'm so grateful it didn't work out <laughs> i know that sounds crazy i exit is a happy ending i made a little bit of money i'm so thankful for that but it helped me. It was kind of training wheels on building a scaled company where I could make some mistakes and now build a company where we're not making those mistakes anymore. And I love my company. Whether we ever sell it or not sell it, it's an, it's an incredibly different ride and different experience. 
that I don't think I ever would have had the guts uh, to say no to that old identity. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but I was so, I was the guy, right, in that business. And, and so I think uh, I'm just, that's another thing I'm just thankful for. The, the ride has been so interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, the training wheels business concept, I think, is so important because I think we, many of us as owners, we get to a point where things are, things are okay, things are good, and we, we kind of go into a false sense of sort of complacency somewhat. Yet, if you could bottle up those learnings, sell what you've created, and then go and you know, create something that leverages all those, you know, that wisdom, you'd have a much bigger, more successful business. I love it. So let's get into the actual um, transaction itself. So you mentioned you brought a PE firm to the table, a private equity firm to the table who you thought you, you would essentially buy you out of the business or buy some of your equity. Like how was that? Maybe walk me through the, the thinking. Yeah. So what I had envisioned, and, and I was really, I, I developed a relationship with an investor who had, who had significant uh, home care experience and, and was part of a fund where they had lots of resources. And he had actually been the operator of, of the $120 million version of what we were doing several years ago. And so, and I liked the guy, we, we had kind of hit it off. We had several meetings, grabbed lunch a few times and he just approached me and said, Hey, um, Hey dude, my, uh, 30 ish year old son is now living out of state running one of these for somebody else. I'm in the twilight of my investor career. I want to buy something that's scalable and your model is the best one I've seen in our state can help me, help me understand how I can join what you're doing. And so what I'm thinking is, wow, I, I, this sounds awesome. This is going to be great. And so we, we were delicate about it. We did not need my business partner gone. We were just hoping to, to, to buy him down to maybe five, 10%, keep a, a seat on the board and give us the active equity to then go open five or six new markets because we'd have the, the, the strategic power, the capital power, and then frankly, just have another operator that would be active, right? In this, in this guy's son. And so that was the plan. And then, you know, I, I, I approached uh, my business partner, my investor with it. And I really, and I, I, in hindsight, I can't remember exactly how the conversation went in detail, but I really hurt his feelings. I didn't, I didn't mean to, I was, and in hindsight, I can see how it would have, right? It's like, Hey, we don't need you gone, but mostly gone. And we're going to buy you out, you know, that kind of thing. And so it may have been a little bit of, Hey, this is how a 34, 34 year old handles this conversation poorly. It could have been it, but all that to say, the conversation didn't go very well in, you know, it became pretty apparent within a month of that one that eh, it was probably time for one of us to go ahead and exit. And so I just said, Hey buddy, let's go ahead and let's do this the right way. And I know that this deal didn't work out, but let's, let me go ahead and help you transition. And so that's what happened. Got it. And so what was the, uh, your, the, the PE guy, uh, that was a potentially going to be an active investor, what kind of multiple were they thinking of, of buying, the business for like what was the offer on the table yeah so it was you know and, and to be clear we didn't have a signed loi so i i deal with enough deals now where i'm like okay you got to take with a grain of salt what the investors say but yeah they were offering us five five and a half times annual ebitda which in this kind of services business i thought was extremely generous i thought that was a <laughs> really good I thought it was a really strong recognition of what he saw as being strength in our brand and strength in our processes. And the fact that we weren't encumbered by a franchise agreement, we are our own baby, so to speak, we could do our own thing. And 
Uh, and so, yeah, that five to five and a half um, contingent on it, me being a roll-up partner and staying with it, they needed me to stick with it. And so, yeah, I felt, felt pretty good about that. How were they going to lock you in to stay with the business? Like what was the model that they were proposing? I don't know if we got all the way down that road. I think, I think what he heard me say in our first meeting was that I don't, I'm not looking to go anywhere. At that point, I didn't have any inclination of leaving. Mm-hmm. And I think for him, he just said, this deal is only happening if you're in and you're in, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so I, I don't know that I had the wisdom to even ask. Like now I've gone through so many exits with our clients in this newer business where I'm like, oh, that would have been a really intelligent question to, to ask them to be like, what happens if our new partnership doesn't work out and I need to leave? It never even occurred to me at the time and we didn't get far enough down that road because I felt like I got to a certain point where I'm like, okay, hold on. I need to actually engage with my investor partner before I start talking details of structure with this PE group. And, and then we just never really got any further. So if I understand you rock up to your legacy partner, your traditional, your original partner and say, Hey, we've got an offer of like five, five and a half times. I'm, you know, we want to buy your equity out. We'll let, let you keep a little tranche of it, but you know, most of it we want to buy. Um, and the reaction was, was not favorable. How did he feel about the, the valuation of five to five and a half? I don't, I really don't know that he had a concept of what the valuation should have been. So, you know, this is a guy that's coming from a very, this is like, so when you, when I think when someone here is investor, they're probably thinking, wow, this guy's a pretty sophisticated business investor and he's a super smart guy, good businessman, but he just owned a couple of other small businesses and had some money. Right. And so I think for him, and this is what I underestimated prior to this meeting. For him, this thing was still his baby. This had been my dream of having this kind of side, although passive, not completely, but mostly passive income. And so I don't know that there would have been a price unless it was just outrageous that would have made him feel super compelled to move. I don't know if that makes sense, but for him, he was, totally, still in, a, yeah. he was in an emotional place where it was like, no, 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 this is my thing. This is my thing. What are you talking about? Sell me, you just won't be gone. And so I, I think, I don't think his dissonance was as much rooted in a four versus five versus six X multiple. Mm-hmm. And it was more rooted in a, it was the principle. It's like, whoa, what, what's, what's happening here? I mean, this is just starting to get good. I'm making a killing over here as the, you know, as the owner here. What, what, what do you mean you want to, you want to, you want me out? So I, I, yeah, I, that answers the question, but I don't think it was a value issue. It was a internal perceived emotional value kind of issue. Yeah. 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 And I think so, like a lot of our listeners would have a lot of the same issues, you know, it's deeply tied to who they are and so forth. So how did you then, so you kind of came to the conclusion that like one of us needs to probably part ways here. How did you, did you guys have some sort of agreement that stipulated how, how and if you could sell your shares back to the, the, uh, the passive investor? We did. So we had a, we had a pretty solid operating agreement, although it didn't really in hindsight, I'm not sure that it really helped us in this scenario as much as we wish it had. So Hmm. You know, we ended up in a position where, and again, I really, I'm assuming here, but I think he really felt fearful. And I'll give you one more step in the journey that will help give some color to the listeners here is mm-hmm. we have this kind of tough investor conversation. Mm-hmm. And then it was about three weeks later that one of our core operating leaders, um, I believed she needed to go. I, I, I believe that she was destroying the culture of our company. And 
I think he looked at that and said, whoa, the kid's going to come to me and try to get me out. And then three weeks later, try to fire the one person that I think could take over for him. This is clearly Tyler trying to leverage a deal here, which uh, in full transparency was never my thought. I'm a, oh, I'm a big culture guy. It's critical to me to make sure we have a team that's operating in sync. And, and so I think that set off in his alarm bells, like we are, we are in trouble. Houston, we have a problem. And, and so because you know, if I'm started- if I'm clear is if if I'm clear in your your comments here, by letting go this person who you felt was a detriment to your culture, that would amplify or enhance your negotiating leverage because now you're the only game in town and 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 he's weakened at the negotiation table. Am I getting that correct? I think that's right because about six months earlier we had moved this person into the role that just gave her more influence over the operation. You know, she had kind of been a manager moving into more of a director role and we just saw tremendous turnover in those two departments. As soon as she took the helm, first couple were like, yeah, probably just bad personnel. Third one, I'm like, we might have a problem here. (laughs) Fourth one. I'm like, Oh God, we have a real problem. And so, so, but yes. And so, and to be honest, this is my naivety that that really didn't occur to me as like a, as a negotiating point. And in fact, in my mind, I'd kind of moved on. I was like, okay, investor didn't work. We'll come back to this guy at some point in the future. Let me just keep all steam ahead. And by the way, we have a difficult conversation to have about this person that is in a role that I'm not sure is a good fit. And, you know, now in hindsight, realizing, oh yeah, this is a person that you had actually brought to the company, business partner, <laughs> right? So mm. it's all, it sounds like funny in hindsight. I'm like, oh yeah, I should have seen that one coming and, and I didn't. <laughs> and, you know, and I really, I think that put him in a very defensive kind of fear-based posture mm-hmm. and it just got acrimonious pretty quickly. And so it was just time to be proactive and say, you know, let me, let me do this. If we can work through our arrangement in a way that is healthy I'm going to be willing to stick around for a hundred days, make sure there's plenty of time to transition. Sounds like you and I disagree about this core leader, but that's okay. Let's keep her. I'll train her, you know, that. And so and it ultimately worked out fine, but that was, the process was pretty edgy for, for a couple months, to be honest. Mm, it sounds, it sounds tough. So what did the agreement call for? Like, how did you sell your shares to the passive investor? Yeah. So this was another part of that initial contract that I just wish I had negotiated better. So it, it gave him, it didn't, first of all, it didn't clearly uh, identify or articulate a formula. So that's something that's so easy to do in a good operating agreement right now. Like me and my business partners now in the current business are going through this. Let's just go ahead and define this formula now that we have a third partner to make sure we never have to debate how to value the business internally. And so we didn't have that, uh, but he had, you know, a built in 10 years to pay owner finance for 10 years was a really long time. I felt like 10 years was unacceptable. I didn't have to stick around for as long as I did, but I offered that. I said, Hey, if we can make this a five-year deal or a three-year deal, I'm willing to be much more cooperative in the transition. And frankly, for me, and this was, I think rooted some in the fact that I just didn't want to have a big long note to these guys. I was willing to take a little bit less to get more of it up front to make it a clean break and, and let these guys run and gun afterwards. And, and so ultimately that that's what ended up working out. So, so to kind of give you a, give it to you in like EBITDA form, I think in ter- instead of getting that five, five and a half annual EBITDA, it really ended up being closer to more of a three and a half, four EBITDA as an internal deal, which I don't know is in, I don't think it was entirely unfair given where we were. And this kind of goes to one of the things I've, I saw in, in your, your book, John, 
the fact that I had still, even though this is a fairly large organization, 100, 100 plus employees, I was still really important, really important as the kind of face of the company. And so it was worth a lot less with me being the guy that was leaving than if it had been the other way around where I'm the promise of the future is, hey, let's keep this you know, kind of personality culture guy, Tyler, intact. And mm. so anyway, that's another, it's a big learning for me to say, wow, I thought I owned a business and I kind of did, but I really owned a big job. And when I, when I was leaving, there was some value leaving with me that, that I didn't have the ability to capture. It's just kind of the way it works. That's so fascinating. So you, you negotiate this deal, which is sort of closer to three and a half to four. And, and originally the operating agreement called for that to be paid out to you over 10 years. What did you end up doing in the way of length of time? So what we, were, where we ended up landing was five years with a, with a pretty big chunk up front. There's an, kind of an amortized portion over the five years and then a kind of a balloon at the end for the, for the rest of it. And, um, but actually kind of a, a quick appendix to the story is he's sold the company again about two to three months ago. And so kind of out of nowhere, I got a, I got a check two months ago, John, it was great. It was, it was so it was like <laughs> a balloon <laughs> so, you know, payment. It came through. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, here we go. This is fantastic. So, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a great close to the story that I'm not ended up only being about three years instead of the five years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I don't so let me, that. let me understand it. Was that, was that just generous on his part to move up or did, did your agreement call for in the event that he went to sell the business that there was there, you know, you would be. No, I think at the agreement, I think if there was a substantive asset sale or if he sold the equity of the company, he had to liquidate because I was just a, I was a debt on the balance sheet for them. So they had to, they had to satisfy that. Now, what was interesting, and this is to give him credit, I think he could have, I think he could have waited a year, in other words, because mm. I think he's going to have to file, you know, this year's tax return going into this coming spring. Yeah. And I believe if he had any, uh, lingering expenses before he closed because I, I think it was an asset sale. I don't think he sold the equity, but I, I think to his credit, he was like, "Let me just be done with this. Let's liquidate this thing and get it done." And and at That's that great. point, what he still owed me, I don't think would have been large enough to be a significant cash flow challenge. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. we're not talking about. I mean, it was it was. It was less than a hundred thousand at that point, I think because of the upfront payment. So it wasn't, it wasn't a gigantic ending check, but you know, versus getting essentially a, a, a large car payment each month, it was nice to get that, you know, yeah. 40 ish thousand dollar last check to kind of finish out the deal. So yeah. 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 Thing. And so if I understand correctly, and, and this is, this is something that I'm trying to learn more about myself. Um, so you agree to a, a price for selling your shares and you agreed to an, a, a portion of that to be paid up front. And then the rest, you are essentially taking as a, a note or a vendor take back. You're selling your shares and, and you're, you're effectively lending the money to the, the passive you know, over time and that he pays that off like a, like a bank note of, of some sort. You are, you are then, I guess, risking that in the event that the business were to fail under his leadership as the passive investor that you, your, your proceeds may dry up. Your checks would stop coming because the business failed. Is that, that's the, that's right. So we, we had a, a formal seller note, you know, a, a note promissory note that was signed that put out the schedule of payments and the interest rate and everything else. And what I'm was not, the interest rate? 
I want to say it was 5%. I think that's what Okay. It was. So a little better than what you're getting in a bank, for example. Yeah. But, yeah. So it might've been prime plus two or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. I think that was the reason I was willing to prioritize a bigger lump at the beginning was because, and, and, and again, I think a good operating agreement probably includes a seller financing clause because you don't want to have a partner exit and suck all the cash out of the business. You want to build in a, a three or five year, I think 10 years is unreasonable. I don't think I've ever seen another one that's 10 years, but I think a three to five year payment where they have to finance through you so you can, once they're gone, you know, move things the way you want to move them. But you're exactly right. There was some risk there. There was a, okay, we know the cash we have. And every month when we get this check, we're happy to get it. But we need to build our life plan, assuming that this could or could not happen in the future. And so that was another reason why just having it be done. It wasn't really about the money. It was about the kind of the anxiety of not knowing how it was going to end. Um, ended last month. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. How did you celebrate when you actually sold the company, sold your share of it? Did you, did you do anything special to celebrate? Man, it was so, I, I would say, you're going to say this is so pathetic. What I did was I took my, 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 my two daughters are young. My wife and I love, love them all. We went on like a three day camping trip. So I was officially retired in my mid thirties for three days. And I came back the following Monday and started a new company. And, <laughs> and I was just, but, but part of it was that I think the, the grieving process and the splitting process was a hundred days, right? I mean, I, I knew in October, what was going to consummate in January. And so in some ways I'd gone through this, I don't know if any other owners would empathize with this, but like, man, I've built this thing. This has been my heart and soul. The mission matters so much to me. And now it's going to be gone. How, how do I feel about that? I feel bad about it. I feel depressed for a little while. And now it's like, okay, I'm cool. I'm through that. Now what's next? And as soon as I can legally do what's next, I want to, I want to celebrate with my family. I want them to, to feel the Tyler's not working like crazy, but then I want to go get back on the horse and do something that matters and build my next company. And so I think that's where we were. And, and it's really funny. We're, we're going to go on a, a little trip next year, assuming the pandemic's better for this, for this final payment. That'll be great. But actually I, I smoked my $40 cigar yesterday with my brother. We, we had had a hard time connecting. <laughs> You know, awesome. it's, it's, although we want to, we want to make a, a living. Don't, don't get me wrong there, but the, the mission and the value and the transformational relationships are just so much are important to me, and, which is weird as an accountant to say that, but that's, they're just important to me. And I think the value follows if you can couple that transformational relationship with systems and with a good pricing model and that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the cigar. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, where can people find out about it? What, what's, what's the new company? Well, so the best decision I ever made as a guy just getting out of grad school, starting a company with no business being the CEO of it was joining one of these peer group, these CEO roundtable kind of mastermind mm -hmm. things. We met each month for a day or a half a day. And one of the guys I met through that group owns a fairly successful software company. And the only thing they do is solve problems for Amazon sellers. And so when I, when I, when I was exiting Care to Continue, I was looking for what my next venture, I knew I wanted to start another company. I just had, I had a cup of coffee with Brandon. And I just said, man, this Amazon space is so interesting. I didn't even realize that when you buy something on Amazon, more than half the time, it's coming from a small business that owns the product. It's not coming from Amazon. And so we started thinking through the different issues that these sellers have and, and the accounting kind of fractional CFO are the ones that, that came to the surface. 
And I'm a big, big believer. The best advice I ever received beyond getting involved with the CEO roundtable, where guys can hold me accountable and encourage me, was there are riches and niches, baby. Find something that you can get so focused on that you may have a chance of being the best in the world at it. And so we opened this bookkeeping and fractional CFO shop for these e-commerce sellers. Um, Amazon sellers mostly. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And where can people find out about it? If they're an Amazon seller, an e-commerce company, where, where can people find out yeah, about so that? Yeah, so selleraccountant.com. Best place awesome. to find us, selleraccountant.com. You can find out everything you want to know about our company. Great. And if people wanted to reach out to you directly, are you a LinkedIn guy? Like, is sure. that a good place to do that? Yeah, absolutely. The nice okay. thing about having a weird name like Jeffcoat with one F <laughs> is that it's Jeff Coat with one F, J-E-F-C-O-T. So if you Google it, you're going to find me. If you, if you find me on LinkedIn, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to connect with you. Awesome. Tyler, Jeff Coat, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Welcome to Built Still Ready. I'll try that again. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> John, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.